we're beginning a, a series that we do every year. This is kind of a realignment series. Every once in a while, your car gets out of alignment because, you know, you drive too fast around all the curves in our town. And so your car gets out of alignment, pulls to the left, and you got to bring it somewhere to have them realign it. And it costs you a ton of money. This is free, you guys. And so every year as a church, we get to come and we get to hear what we are actually up to. Because if we're not careful, we can be going through the motions for a pretty long time. And before we know, we've just been going through the motions our entire life. But we are here for a reason. We are here for a purpose. God has brought you here for a purpose. Again, if you're just here on vacation, we are up to something as a church. We love our town. When we started talking about what we want to be known for as a church, we decided a while ago that we want to be known as a, as a people, as a movement, as a tribe, as a family that loves their town well. And so I love my town. If we're not careful, it's on our t-shirts, it's on our coffee mugs, it's on our stickers, it's on everything. It can almost become a slogan for us. So every year we talk about what that phrase actually means. What does it mean when we say, I love my town, that we love our town. And where I want to start is I want to kind of give you a, a biblical overview about the role of towns in the Bible. Where does this idea of a city come from? Now, at the beginning of the story of the Bible, there was a man named Cain who became very jealous of his brother because his brother had favor with the Lord. And it says in Genesis 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule it. God tells Cain, be careful with your anger. Because sin is like a monster that is waiting to devour you. You have to be able to rule it. But Cain gives in to this monster and he murders his brother. And as a result of murdering his brother, God sends Cain into the wilderness. And there Cain builds the first city that we see in the Bible. Now you might be wondering, how does one man build an entire city? And the Bible cities were made up of homes and what made a city a city is when they put a wall around that city. And so what Cain did was he, he had a bunch of homes. People would build their homes and he put a wall around that city. He put that wall up to protect himself because he was afraid that if somebody found him, knowing what he did to his brother, that they would kill him. So again, this wall makes the city, but the city of Cain goes on to breed a culture of revenge and violence. Later, one of the city's warriors, who was kind of like a corrupt king named Lamech, says this in Genesis 4. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. So this is the mindset at work in Cain's city. This monster that Cain let within him is now the monster that the whole town lives within. It is breeding, it is growing, and the city has become bad news, but it doesn't have to be. The city of Cain, the Bible tells us, is where music was invented. The Bible tells us the city of Cain is where they started to begin working with metals, that the city of Cain is where they started domesticating animals for the very first time. Cities can be a place where we create abundance for everyone, but if you give the city, enough time, that monster will eventually take over. 
like the next city founded by a giant warrior king who builds a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens because he's trying to make a name for himself. It's the city called Babylon. Babylon would one day spread its violence through the land, conquering many nations. Babylon is a biblical image of a, a violent human city. And, and this is all tragic because the city is the opposite of the safe garden that God originally put humans in. He designed us to live in this garden. And, and in, this, in this garden, in these ancient cities, you have these imposing walls that are about self-protection and keeping your resources inside the city. But the garden is protected by God. There are no walls. And there's a spring at its center. And this spring flows rivers of water. And these rivers flow into other cities and other areas and give them life. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty awesome. Babylon has a tower at its center to reach up to the heavens. But the garden has the tree of life. It is the throne of God. It's the presence of God touching down into the land. And the mindset of the city is self-preservation and peace enforced by the threat of death. But the culture of the garden is peace through generosity because there's always enough to go around. And we all want to go back to the garden. But the surprise of the biblical story is that God plans to bring his garden to the city. Even though we're all longing to get back to the garden, God wants to bring that garden to our town. And how is God going to do this? How are we a part of that? Will we ever see God bring his garden to our town? And I want you to lean forward a little bit. I want you to feel that tension. How does God bring that garden to where we live? How does he do that? So let's talk about our town a little bit, a town that I love. And I recognize that I wasn't born here. I wasn't born here. I'm not, I'm not what you might call a native, but I have chosen to live here. I've chosen to raise my kids here. I've chosen to, to share the gospel here. I've chosen to live the best years of my life in this town that I love. And the, the first thing you'll, you'll notice about our town is its geography. You, no matter where you're from, as you're, you're driving, you can even be from this town. You can pull out of your driveway, turn and be like, there's a mountain right there. There's mountains everywhere. It's lush. It's ancient. It's beautiful. It is a gorgeous place to live. We're surrounded by beautiful mountains, rivers, and waterfalls. When you think about the rivers, we have the Colisaja River, we have the Little Tennessee River, we have Nantahala River, we've got all these, we've got the Tuckasegee. If you like to kayak, if you like to tube, if you like to fish, if that's you, if you like the water, there is plenty out there for you. We've got all kinds of lakes. There's, there's Lake Chatug, there's Lake Nantahala, there's Lake Rabin, there's all these lakes, Lake Junaleska, around us. You better like water. That's all I'm saying. It's summertime. Get out there. There's just so much to see. And if you don't want to get wet and you just want to go look at some waterfalls, there are plenty of waterfalls. There's the Colisage Falls. There's the Query Falls, which some of you call Bust Your Butt Falls. There's Bridal Veil Falls. There's all these different falls around us. The Rufus Morgan Falls, the Mooney Falls, the White Oak Creek Falls, the Big Laura Falls. We're surrounded by waterfalls. We're also home to the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail is this 2,200-mile 2, trail that goes from Georgia to Maine. 
And we just happen to be in this, this perfect pot spot for it. There's some beautiful spots in our town along the Appalachian Trail. There's Seilerbald, there's Wyabald, and you can go up there and explore those things. If you've got a fourth grader in our town, every year the fourth graders take a hiking trip up to Seilerbald. And now I'm blessed with not having any kids in the fourth grade. Praise the Lord. But when I did, you know, all three of my kids went through the fourth grade here, and I had to meet your kids who never go outside, who have never walked more than 20 feet. And I just got to tell you, you need to do a better job. These kids thought they were dying. They, I mean, literally thought they were dying. And it was, they're probably too young to walk up Siler Ball. But anyways, Siler Ball is a beautiful and gorgeous place. And Franklin just happens to be 111 miles north of Springer Mountain, where the Appalachian Trail begins. And it makes us the perfect place for Appalachian hikers, through hikers, to stop and resupply and take a zero day and find rest and maybe get a free meal if we're so generous, get a free ride into town. It makes us the perfect, perfect place to love on people from all over the place who a lot of them are hiking this trail to find themselves. We're in a unique place to love them. I like Franklin because we get to go on a lot of day trips. You might not know this. Maybe you need to get out a little bit more. Some of you have never been out of Franklin and it shows. But others of you, sometimes you get cabin fever and you just, maybe you, maybe you need to get away. We just happen to be an hour and a half away from Asheville. We're two hours away from Chattanooga. We're two hours away from Greenville. We're two hours away from Knoxville. We're two hours away from Atlanta, which just so happens to make us two hours away from 75% of the world's population because one of the largest airports, literally one of the largest airports in the world is in Atlanta. So if you can drive two hours to that airport, you can get anywhere, 75% away from the world's population. And I mean it. And if you're down for a little bit further of a drive, we're four hours away from Nashville, five hours away from Savannah, five hours away from Charleston. But if small towns are your jam, I mean, we're just like 30 minutes away from, from Clayton, from Bryson City, from Silva, from Highlands, from Cherokee. And there's so much more tucked in between. But regardless of the geography, regardless of, of how convenient we are to explore new places, it's the people that make the town. And what I love about our town is its people. Franklin is home to the best people. My town is generous. There are always strangers helping other strangers out. There's always needs that are being completely met by people who don't even know each other. There's always a restaurant that is giving away a portion of what their car washes even giving a portion of what, what they're earning that day away to special causes. It's incredible to see. We're family-focused, and whether you have kids or not, you want to live in a town that's family-focused because it's families that truly build towns. Now, within our town, where we are right now, where you're sitting, within a 40-minute drive of where you're sitting, there is 106,000 people within a 40-minute drive of where you're sitting right now. And what you need to know about those 106,000 people is that they're very entrepreneurial-minded. That's one of the things I loved about this community. I love about living here is just about everybody you know either owns a business or is thinking about starting one. It's just something that people do. With, within a 40-minute drive of where we are, there is 5,464 businesses. That is a lot of businesses. The other thing I like is that we're always changing. You might not like that. 
You might be like, we need to keep this town small so that we don't change so much. The reason why I like it is because I want my kids to work here and live here. And if that's going to be true, then some things are going to need to change. We're going to need to grow so they have a place to work. We're going to need more jobs. I love that there's a new Aldi. I I like Aldi. I don't know if you've ever been there, but their pork ribs are cheap and delicious. I'm just letting you know. You got to bring your own grocery bag, but that's great, right? We love it. And it's right next door to Christian chicken. God's, you know, where God's throne is on earth, the tree of life, Chick-fil-A. And so it's just, it's just amazing things are happening. It's always changing every six seconds in our town. There's a roundabout being built somewhere. I'm just letting you know, it's just like, it's just like, it's a really cool thing to live in a town that's always changing. I just, I really, really, really love living here. One of the ways that our town's changing, and you might not notice, is that of of the 106,000 people that live here, the largest demographic is baby boomers. They make up 28% of our town, of of the people that live within a 40-minute drive of where you're sitting is baby boomers, 28%. 21% of our town is millennials. But what's overgrowing them at, at 23% is Generation Z. Is, is Gen Z is, is the, the people who are from the ages of 11 to 25 are a quickly growing population in our area. And my question is, what are we doing to reach them? What are we doing to, to make sure they don't drop out of the workforce? What are we doing to make sure that they understand that God has a plan for them? But there are so many reasons to love our town. But instead of looking for reasons to love where we live, instead of asking the question, what great things does this town have to offer me? What's in it for my benefit? Which is a very normal thought. What if the phrase, I love my town, wasn't just a slogan? but it was a statement of responsibility. If love was a verb, if love does, what if it was something that drove us to action? What if we found reasons to give back? What if we found reasons to bless others and make a lasting difference? How would God want us to love our town? What would it look like for us to lead by loving our town in this way, to give back? What if we can make a difference by blessing those around us? Jesus modeled this for us in the New Testament. Jesus would go around healing the sick. He would feed the hungry. He would restore people's lives. People who were racked by mental disorders and diseases and and demons. He would restore them and give them back their lives and their dignity. He would bring hope to the people that were hopeless. And he would do that all before they started following him. It would make sense if they said, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, that's great. If you're going to follow me, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, restore you. I'm going to heal your disease. I'm going to give... He did all of that before they even confessed him as the Messiah. But in all reality, Jesus was doing those things, again, before people professed their faith in him. In the Old Testament, we read a passage in Jeremiah 29, which gives us a glimpse of what God's plan is for the cities of this world, for the towns of this world. This letter was written to what we call the exiles in that big evil city known as Babylon. They were captured from their hometown that they loved in Israel, and they were kidnapped and brought 800 miles across the desert into Babylon a place that is wildly different than them. They have a wildly different view when it comes to politics, 
when it comes to morality, when it comes to religion, when it comes to the world around them. And the question is, how does this group of people respond when they are in a city that is so broken like that? How do you respond when you feel like you don't belong here? How do you respond when you feel like an exile in this town? And I got to tell you, there are a lot of people who feel like exiles today, especially in the United States. We've got pressure on both sides. I don't know why, but we split the United States into two, and we split it into two when it comes to political parties. It's something weird that we've done. I don't know. It's just we've been pressured our entire life. My kids are pressured in school to choose a side. And so we've divided ourselves on these sides, and to make it even a hotter mess, You've got people on both sides. Conservatives don't feel like it's conservative enough. Liberals don't feel like it's liberal enough. And everybody is pulling out their hair, saying the world is falling apart. I don't belong here. How can everyone who lives here not feel like they belong here? And the answer is that we live in a broken world. And I'm going to be real with you. You know, I've, I've kind of hesitated sharing some of these things because a lot of these things I've got from professionals who work in these systems from meetings that I've been in and none of these things have really been shared publicly but I want to share them with you because we're in this together you need to understand for as much as I love this town all the beauty that it has to offer just like anywhere you go there are shadows there are dark places that we're called to bring the light And there are things like the fact that 95% of the people who are in our prison system, who are in our local jail, and because our local jail is full and overflowing, they're they're taking a Swain County, 95% of the people that we would call residents of, of our area that are in the prison system are there because of substance abuse issues or mental health issues. 95% of them. And one of the things you need to know, and again, I just want to be real with you, in June of last year, every every other day in June, there was an overdose. Every other day in June. In April of this year, there were seven doses of Narcan given out. There were five overdose deaths, and one of those was a 70-year-old man. And that's just in one month. And that doubled from January. There's been one person in, in our town who has overdosed this year, just one person, 22 times. Just one person. There was a guy, because we have the hospital that's just opened, you know, we can throw a rock at the hospital if you want to. Uh, We we get a lot of people coming down and asking for help. And after one of our board meetings, there was a, a gentleman asking for help. His wife was in the hospital, and he was told that he could not wait for her in the waiting room, um, which seemed kind of interesting, but we were gonna help him. No questions asked. And so we worked really hard to get him up in a hotel room, come to find out what had actually happened was his wife drove him to the hospital because he had overdosed. And while he was being treated for an overdose, she went into the bathroom of the hospital and overdosed herself. And so they asked him to leave. There's just a lot of stuff that was, is going on. Drugs used to come from Atlanta and come through our town. Now the concern is that the drugs aren't going through Franklin, they're staying here. So what are we going to do about it? This is why we do Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights. This is why we're not trying to ignore that there's a problem in our town, but we're trying to tangibly do what we can to, one, go to a root issue. These kids, this generation of 11 to 25-year-olds who are going to drop out of the workforce because they weren't given the skills, we're going to be a part of that. 
These children who are being moved from house to house in foster families, we're going to be a part of making sure they have a stable home to call family. We're going to be a part of Celebrate Recovery. Again, Monday nights at 6 p.m. You might not have anything you feel like you need to recover from, but it's for anyone who has hurts, habits, or hang-ups, or an addiction of any kind. And if that's not you, come and play a part of blessing other people who just need to feel loved and accepted while they're on their journey for complete independence from these substances in their life. And don't be the kind of church that when somebody comes here not smelling right, not looking right with glassed over eyes, don't be the kind of church that says, I can't believe they're at church today. Be the kind of church that when somebody walks in like that, they don't only feel welcome, they feel wanted in this church. What is it that we can do to get involved? We must get involved. And on top of all of that, we have a housing crisis in our town. There just isn't enough housing. We have couples who both have a job, a dual income house, who have been renting a house, but because of the housing boom, their landlord decided to sell the house to make some money. Now they can't find a place to rent even though they have the money. There's simply no place to rent. And you can imagine the kind of issue that that causes, especially in a town where we're below, where the, the number of people below the poverty line is higher than the national average. You can imagine the kind of problem that causes in a jail system that's crowded. When there are nonviolent criminals that can be put out on probation, you can't be put out on probation unless your pro- probation officer knows where to find you. And so you can't be put out on probation without an address. And because you can't find an address, you have to go back into the prison system. It's just the housing crisis is a really, really big deal for us. There is not a single landlord within a 40-minute drive of us that is, that is accepting the HUD program accepting any kind of subsidies for housing, not a single landlord. Even if you were an individual that wanted to qualify for subsidized housing, there is a three-year waiting list. There is a huge housing crisis where we live. REACH, which is a women's shelter, which is taking in women who are in need, women who have been abused, who are housing them because they're in situations that they just need to get out of. And so they're bringing them into to REACH Women's Shelter. And what REACH Women's Shelter does is they find, try to find them a permanent safe place. And years ago, the, the average wait time a woman would come into that shelter before they found a place to call home was about six weeks. Now the average is six months. It's just this housing crisis is becoming a huge problem for us. And something that you can pray for us as a church as we talk about how can we be a solution. I was in a meeting uh, at, at a mental health task force uh, meeting and, and they were talking about what, it, what would it take for you to be transitional housing because a lot of these places, even churches were going, hey, we'll put a tiny house in our church property. And it turns out to qualify to be a transitional home you need to be, you need to have city water and city sewer. You need to be within a certain distance of a hospital and within a certain distance of a grocery store. And the whole time they're talking, God's just like elbowing me, not just like in the shoulder, but he's getting me up in the eyes. I mean, in the ears. And, and as I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this, God brings to mind that we have a building in the back of our church that just so happens to have city water and city sewer that we could throw a rock at the hospital that we're less than a mile from a super Ingalls. And so we've been in talks as a church with local organizations and politicians to donate the building in the back to be used as a transitional 
house for, for three different families. We're going to call that the Hope House. We want to have a board that helps us run and operate that. We want individuals in our church to sponsor these families, to love these families, to help them be successful. We want to offer them Financial Peace University. We want to give them savings accounts. We want them to live in here a year tops because we're going to be giving all their rent, whatever it is they pay to live there, back to them. We want to give them dignity by giving them new furniture, not the sofa that your dog chewed on that you thought would be a great donation. And so that's what we want to do. We want to love on our town. We want to really meet real needs. And so that's something you can be praying for as it's still kind of in in the working. What you also need to know is that within a 40-minute drive of us, there are 3,200 single parents. 3,200 single parents. Those are some children who are growing up without a father. Those are some children who are growing up without a mother. And we need to support those families. We need to love them. We need to give them a safe place where they can come and offload the kids while they're being discipled next door. And just so you know, I served in Discover Kids last week. I served in the classroom that everybody's like, it's like the elephant graveyard in Lion King. Do not go there. You're going to die. And so we go in there. It's Creekside, by the way. And so we go in there, and it's just a beautiful, amazing time. I'm just letting you know, you guys are doing an excellent job with your children. It was, a, it was an amazing experience to be able to teach them. We got the lesson ahead of time. There was a devotion for teachers. So the lesson becomes part of our hearts before we begin pre- preaching and teaching to these children. All the, the activities are planned ahead of time. You know, we did the, the whole teaching about, you know, the man finds treasure in a field, buries the treasure, sells everything he has and, and, and buys that, that, that field. And so I was asking the kids, that, you know, this is all set up for us. The, the whole illustration was already given to us. I'm asking kids, what's something expensive? They all said, iPhones and tablets. They think those things are like more expensive than a house, you guys. One kid did say a big boat, which is very relative. I'm like, Jeff Bezos's boat or like a, a Carolina skiff? What are we talking about here? And so it was just a really beautiful time. You know, some kids were laying on the floor just being kids. Some kids were sitting properly in their seats, but it was a gorgeous, beautiful time. And we get to do that for these families. No questions asked. It's something that we get to do. And at the same time, we need to challenge men not to give up on their families. We need to come around men and say, we can finish this race together. We can put some guardrails up to make sure that you're not wandering off somewhere. We could could, could support each other. There are 300 children in our town that have a parent in the prison system. 300 children in our town that have a parent that's in our prison system. There are 80 children currently in foster care in Macon County. We've partnered with Together We Can to be able to recruit and train and create space for foster families to be certified, for guardian ad litems to be certified, those who are going to be representing those children in court to be certified, to take care of the needs of children, families, and foster families. And this year, instead of uh, you know, collecting school supplies and, and giving it to caseworkers to bring to families. Together we can decided to make this a big event to invite the whole family to so that we could show them how much we love and support them and their fostering and adoption journeys. So today from 4 to 6 p.m., we're going to be having a back-to-school bash 
for foster, adoptive, and union academy families. And this After the second service, don't do it after this service, but after the second service, we're going to be removing all the chairs from the auditorium because we're going to be having bounce houses in here. Our, our youth group is going to be doing uh, carnival games this afternoon to love on these kids and to make sure that they have their school supplies. And, and if you took a tag last week to get school supplies, those school supplies are back to uh, do back today. If you didn't have an opportunity last week, you still have time after the service to get a tag, go buy some school supplies and bring them back. If, if you're too busy for that and you just want to donate and somebody will shop on your behalf, you can do that as well. If you want to help with what's happening this afternoon, you can talk to Julie or Rachel that's going to be in the lobby and we can make this thing happen together. But sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, I sit in these meetings and you start to feel this feeling of despair. And the truth is, if you don't know Jesus and you don't know the hope that he offers, you can start to feel a little helpless. And still, sadly, there are some who follow Christ who think the best thing that we can do is avoid the shadows, avoid the darkness, avoid those people, maybe even move to a different neighborhood or move to a different town. But what is it that God is calling us to do in our town? And again, in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, God is talking to Israel who's in Babylon. And this is how he tells them to live. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare." In its good, you will find your good. When it finds peace, you will find peace. Serve your town. Love your town. Love your town. Plant gardens there. Have kids there. Seek the peace and prosperity of your town. That's what God is asking us to do. And I'm sure that there would have been people in that day who would have said, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think that's a good idea. What we need to do is make sure we don't interact with anybody. We need to stay in our homes and try to stay alive until the day that we die. That's what we need to do. And yet God gives them the opposite instruction. He says, live in it, raise your families in it, be the cultural architects for your town, design and build peace and prosperity. Seek its welfare. Do what you can for its greater peace and the prospering of those around you. And there are many that want to come to a town or to a city to take from that town or city, to make a name for themselves, to get recognition and power and achievement and money. Because if that's the end goal in your life, then I'm just letting you know that there is no way you're going to get to that destination. You're going to wake up every day wanting to achieve more and it's going to be exhausting and it's going to be depressing because you're going to say, what can I achieve and get? It is a path without any destination. It is never enough. It never satisfies. And interestingly enough, that kind of town also feels very oppressed. You feel very oppressed when you're there. That's why some of you moved to Franklin from those larger towns because you just could not handle the oppression there anymore. Because the objective is just to reach higher and higher and higher, you step on people to get to that objective. And so some people have traded success for loneliness. And they want to come to a small town where they feel like there is more community. 
But God doesn't call us to do that because we know who we are. We know that we are loved, that we've been accepted, that there's not this growing determination inside of us to prove ourselves because we've already been proven in Christ. And that is an incredible feeling to know who you are, that I've been loved, that I've been accepted by him. God is calling us out of that love to go and serve and love our town. And unfortunately, as the capital C church in the United States, we began to believe that towns, small towns were okay because we watched the Andy Griffith show and and the cops in that show don't even have bullets in their guns. Small towns are great. What began to happen though is seminaries began to train up pastors to go to big towns and big cities. And all the pastors that are called to go to these giant conferences for other pastors are from big cities, big areas, big urban areas that have large, huge churches because of the size of the population in their town. And we began to ignore small towns. And what's happened is small towns have become the mission field of the United States. And small towns, every statistic on poverty and addiction and depression is way higher than urban cities. Small towns are the mission field of the United States. I thank God that in 2007, God sparked something deep in the souls of families in this community to see something different. This discussion about a church became a church in 2008. And God gave those people a vision for a church that would reach the lost, this growing unchurched population. Did you know that of the 104,000 people that live within a 40-minute drive, half of them don't go to church? Half of them, that's 50,000 people that don't have a faith family. They don't have a supportive family that loves them that maybe do not even know Jesus. There are lost people all around us who need to hear the gospel. There are addicted that need a healer. There's despairing people out there that need somebody to comfort them. There are brokenhearted that need hope. There are sinners that need a savior and we all need a family to belong to. So I want to call you as missionaries. God is calling us to be missionaries in our world. What are some of the ways that we can be a missionary? I hope that you will pursue holiness. There is a whole long list of stuff that I could go through about what it means to be a missionary. And one of those things I want you to know, and I'm just going to have to cut some for time, is I want you to be a good local. A good missionary is a good local. I want to define missionary for you. Uh, So missionary is defined in Webster's Dictionary as someone who shares their faith by providing services to people such as education, literacy, social justice, healthcare, and economic development. That is our call, but we're not just going to send people to hell on full stomachs. We believe that people need to know who Jesus Christ is. That is our call. That is what we're doing. And we want to share who Jesus is with people. But people don't want to follow somebody who's just negative all the time. So I'm calling you to be a good local. What does it look like to be a good local? A good local is somebody who uses their words well. When it comes to your town, I need you to love this town with your words. In a large town, you can get away with being a jerk, uh, to a waiter or a waitress. Nobody's going to care because nobody you're never going to see them again. In a small town, if you're a jerk to a waiter or a waitress, they are related to 75 different people in this town. And one of them is the mayor and everyone's going to hate you. 
So be a good local when it comes to your words. If Jesus is important to you, then so are the lost. And if the lost in your town are important to you, they'll gravitate again towards salt and light, not darkness and negativity. So use your words in a positive way. Secondly, be a good local with your actions. Again, don't be jerks to people. Good locals weep with those who are weeping and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. All I'm asking you to do is be the kind of person that somebody likes to be around. And there are some of you that when you move out of our town, we're all going to throw a party. I'm just letting you know. But just be a positive influence in our town. But we also, when it comes to our actions, we must pursue holiness. It says in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with, without which no one will see the Lord. We need to pursue holiness so that people will see the Lord. With all the needs in our town, we need to begin devoting ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit to defeat the monster of sin and our lives. We need to devote ourselves to God and others, to the holiness, to Jesus and his ways. And when we love others by serving them, our town begins to change. And again, with all the needs in our town, more than housing, more than a safe place, more than education and skills to build a better future, we need spiritual renewal. We need a revival We need a hunger, we need a drive, we need a desperation for holiness and devotion to our call to follow Jesus. That's what changes a town. When we talk about towns, when we talk about cities in the Bible, if you look at King David, God appointed King David to lead Israel, and he chose Jerusalem as the capital city for God's people. It was Mount Zion. It was was the city of David. And David brings the throne of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, up to Jerusalem. And it becomes like an image of God's garden city. It's a beautiful place. There's abundance for everybody. And there's peace for a time until David gives into the same monster that Cain gave into and kills one of his soldiers so that he could have his wife for his own. And that begins this tragic story of Jerusalem, of corruption through the kings from David's line. While there was a few kings that did try to stop the monster, most gave in. So this garden city becomes a den of robbers full of greed and violence and oppression. And eventually Babylon, an even bigger city, an even bigger monster again, comes and takes them out. And you start to think maybe the garden city isn't realistic after all. But Israel's prophets maintained hope that God would one day create his heavenly city here on earth, here in our town, with streams going out and the nations streaming in, gardens and feasts and peace and no more death. And this doesn't sound like a new town. This sounds like a brand new creation. And this is the hope and reality that brings us to the story of Jesus. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem was ruled by a violent King Herod. When Jesus began announcing God's heavenly kingdom here on earth, he didn't go up to Jerusalem and its leaders. Jesus went to small towns. He went to hills. He went to towns like Galilee's, Galilee, and he's sharing the good news with the poor and the unimportant. And then Jesus took his followers up on a hill and he said this to them in Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Jesus was calling them and he, and he taught his followers the ethic of God's city, which is the opposite of the mindset of Cain's city and of Babylon. Instead of protecting life and keeping peace with the threat of violence and death, Jesus taught his followers to keep peace by sharing generously even with your enemies and to preserve life with love and forgiveness, the restoration of relationships, even if it costs you. This is what it looks like when a heavenly city comes to earth. And when we begin to love our town that way, when we devote ourselves to holiness, what I'm talking about here is I'm going to use a buzzword. We're talking about a revival. That's what we're talking about. Over these next two weeks, we're going to be talking about what it takes to be revival ready as a church, what it takes to start a movement that will change lives, communities, and the world. We're going to give you an opportunity starting next week to sign up for what we call I Love My Town. The last Sunday of August, we will not be gathering here as a church in the building. We'll be going out as the Capital C Church to love on our schools, to mulch playgrounds, to paint buildings, to give people some dignity, to love on the organizations like No Wrong Door, like, like Smoky Mountain Pregnancy Center, these different organizations like REACH, who are doing incredible things in our town, we will love on them as the church the last Sunday of August. But we're going to be going on a journey of revival together. And what you need to understand is that God didn't win us over by power and force, but by loving us and serving us. It was his kindness that led us to repentance. And we are not strong to strong arm our way into the lives and culture of this town, but we enter their hearts through love and service. We believe that when we lead people with love and service, then suddenly hearts are open to this message that we carry. And maybe that heart is yours in this room today. Maybe for the first time, you're hearing about the message of God that is a cause that is greater than any other cause this world has ever known. It's a cause for which I would be willing to die. It is a God that loves us so much that he pursued us, lived a life that we could not live, and died the death that we deserved. And when he did that, he cut us free from the power of sin in our life. He bought us, paid off our debts, and now we belong to him. He is not an oppressive master. He is a master that builds us up, encourages us, and empowers us to make a difference in all the ways that we describe our town needs to be saved in. His name is Jesus Christ, and he has changed everything. And today we have the unique opportunity together as Christians to take communion, to remember all that Jesus has done for us. So in a moment, I'm going to pray for you. And if this is the first time you're responding to the gospel, I want you in the sincerity of your heart, just say to the Lord, God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I believe that what you did on that cross was for me. I want to give you my life and in return, receive a life that is truly life. And today might be the first day that you take communion with us. If you're not a believer in this room, I would invite you to sit back, no judgment, the communion today is for believers, but if that's not you, I just want you to observe what happens right now. But I'm going to pray for us. When I say amen, I want you to be able to get up out of your seat, come forward. Our ushers will help you, but we have some communion elements in the front and in the back as well. Grab some of those elements, have a seat, and we'll take those elements together. But let's pray together. Father, as we talk about our town, as we talk about its great needs, as we talk about the shadows, God, we are so grateful that we know the light, that you have called us into something greater. We are not powerless in the face of the things that are happening in this town that we love. We are, in fact, empowered to make a difference. 
And so God, today, as we recognize what gives us that power, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I pray that it would be a wake-up call, that this morning when we woke up, it wasn't just a, a physical thing, that it was a spiritual thing, that right now we will be awake to the things that you are calling us to do as we go on this journey as a church together. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.